You're listening to Run With The Bulls, a podcast discussing a unique approach to everyday finance with everyday people. Run With The Bulls is sponsored by Mentoro, a financial wellness company. Now, your hosts, author Danny Kofke and the royalty of financial wellness, Whitney Queen. Welcome to Run With The Bulls. My name is Danny Kofke, and I'm a motivational mentor with Mentoro. I am joined by the president of Mentoro, Whitney Queen. Hey, Whit. Hey, Danny, and hey to everyone listening. Once again, we are joined here today by a member of the Mentoro team, Casey Stegman. Casey is the Senior Vice President of Strategic Planning for Mentoro. Hey, Casey. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Today, we have an interesting topic at hand. Have you all ever noticed just how different generations view certain financial issues differently? Definitely. And it's funny that you say that because actually just, uh, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, you and I were having a conversation about that, that I think you were home for dinner with your family and uh, you and your stepdad kind of had a discussion about this. Yes, it was very interesting. So we're sitting at the dinner table and my stepfather goes into this story about how he's been using his credit card and basically they lost their internet. And so he had to call in to make the payment and he's getting so frustrated because he's having to talk to robots and he's having to press one or press two and he's a little bit hard of hearing. So he's having a hard time following the instructions. And so I simply posed the question, well, if that's so frustrating, why don't you change cards? Which was the wrong question to ask because I quickly found out just how long he had been with American Express since 1977. It says that on his credit card. And he went on and on about how loyal he is. And so it really had me thinking maybe some of the older generations tend to look at loyalty to finances similar to how they do other things, whereas we tend to see a little bit less commitment in some of the younger generations. Have you guys noticed that? I just have a question. Did he have the same Amex from 1977? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And it's kind of, it is interesting where you think, okay, they're loyal to like credit card companies, financial institutions. And when you drive around any big city, like we're kind of close to Atlanta, I know Casey's close to Dallas the biggest buildings are usually those financial institutions, right? So how can they afford such elaborate buildings? It's definitely not because they like us. It's because we're paying them a lot of interest, but yet we stay loyal to them. Oh, they just like me so much. Well, you know, they, they may treat you okay, but nah, they don't got your back. If you're not paying them interest, guess what? <laughs> They're not gonna help you out. That's a very fair point this conversation with my stepfather continued and we obviously have different philosophies on how we view finances. You know, I may have multiple credit cards and use them for different reasons. He tends to look at credit cards as you only use that for, you know, specific situations and, and is very strict on, on how it's leveraged. So I do think that there's this interesting balance between some of the younger generations. We've talked about this before, Danny, but in maybe leasing a car versus buying one. And, and I'm of the mind, um, I guess it shows my age, a little bit older than you. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I always thought leasing is like really stupid. Like I always just in that in my head. And then I know I talked with you and also Casey, I think we've talked about leasing compared to buying. And I think I've changed. And I guess that's good now working with Mentoro and talking to all our different participants. 
everyone has a unique different story. So it isn't one of those like a blanket statement, oh, it doesn't make sense to rent a house. It doesn't make sense to lease a car. Well, in some cases it can. And I think that is something that, you know, we try to do here at Mentor and look at just the person itself. Okay, it may make sense for you to spend a little bit more on entertainment because that's important to you. Whereas, you know, maybe for me, I have two kids, so I may have to set the money aside and I can't do as much entertainment because I'm thinking more about their weddings or something down the road. What makes the most sense for you and what values do you hold? So on the lease first buy thing, my dad and I could not be on further ends of the spectrum on that debate. When I talk to him about the fact that I like to lease cars, he looks at me like I'm, you know, burning money. He's the kind of guy that he buys a car with the intent to drive it until, you know, the wheels fly off of it. And, and, uh, and I am the, the complete opposite. I like to have a new car every couple of years. I like less maintenance issues. You know, I just like it to be dependable and new. In my case, I prefer to lease and I'm okay with having that payment every month. I build it in and it, it is what it is. So we're very, uh, very different on that side of things. But back to the credit card debate for a minute, my parents are very old school and they view any credit card debt whatsoever as negative. And what I have to try to emphasize to them, I use my credit card for almost everything. And then at the end of every month, I pay it off. Well, I am able to use that to build points, which ultimately turns into income. Or in my case, I actually have my credit card rewards go automatically to my mortgage every month. And I use my credit card for everything. Well, you know, my parents don't understand that. They feel like every time you swipe the card, you're paying interest on your transaction and it's double digit and what have you. And it's, it's tough to, to get that across to them. 100%. There are definitely things that I'm learning from my stepfather. I've picked on him quite a bit, but I have a tendency if something breaks, I'm just going to throw it away and go buy a new one. <laughs> he's the type who he's had all of the things that he has for years and years and years, and they all look brand new. And it's because he takes care of them and he fixes them when they break and he invests in good quality things. So I definitely have some things to learn from the older generation as well in that when you invest in something, no matter what it is, make sure that you take care of it so that it lasts you a long time and then you don't have to worry about it. And on that note, how just generally speaking, generations view stuff. My parents don't throw anything away. And if something has any kind of use at all, five years down the line, 10 years down the line, if there's any chance that they might use that something, they're keeping it. Whereas I look at things and, uh, you know, I don't like clutter. I don't like having things around. And I figure if I do need it three or four years from then, I'll buy it. Yeah, I got a funny story it just happened a couple years ago. So my parents were getting ready to sell their house. So we were cleaning out. My mom, unfortunately, let my dad just have this room to himself, like just with anything that he had. So we're going through his stuff. And the Jason County, a couple counties away from us, is a Coney County, and he had a phone book from a Coney County from 1996. And I'm like, why in the world? But it's interesting, just doesn't throw anything away. <laughs> <laughs> it is such a good point, especially nowadays. You look at what the younger generations are watching on TV. I mean, Marie Kondo is the big thing on Netflix. So we're, we're seeing certain trends that are pushing that minimalistic lack of loyalty or lack of commitment to things and focusing more on experiences. So I think we can agree that there are some big differences across the generations. But where did these come from? Stay tuned to find out.
The world changed a lot from when the boomers were born in the 1950s to when the millennials were born in the 1980s. And it changed even more between the 70s, when the boomers started working, to the 2000s, when the millennials did. That's right. The kind of world people grew up in changes and how they think about money. And some of these changes are directly related to money. So, for instance, the cost of an education. So I graduated high school. I'll give my age. I graduated high school in 1994. So at that point, college was not as expensive as it is right now. And, you know, I kind of knew what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a history teacher at that time. But then I ended up changing my major to elementary ed. But it really didn't cost me much. When people say, okay, you can go to college and kind of find yourself for a year or two. So now that I have a 17-year-old, it's like she's going to be a senior next year. And she has to know what she wants to do the rest of her life. It just seems because of the cost of education, that's kind of the pressure that she feels. So I do think that is one change, maybe why her generation and even some of the millennial generation where they may not be as tied to certain things as much because it is so hard, that pressure that they're already feeling in ninth grade, you got to know what you want to do for the next 40 years. That's really tough. And I think it's interesting to look at how that's impacted the workforce and maybe what people might have gone into. Back when maybe my parents were first starting to go to college, trade schools were extremely popular and more people were going into different trades. That is not quite as expensive. And I would say the education was spread out a little bit more. But then this big push came around, pushed people towards getting two, four plus year degrees. So people started to put more emphasis on that. More colleges started coming about and that really tended to grow pretty high. But what's interesting is I've noticed over the last couple of years where trades are coming back. I think it'll be nice to see maybe we reach that balance again. For sure. And another area, too, that I think we see some of the changes, the cost of housing, especially as we're doing this right now. I mean, housing is at, if not an all-time high, it's definitely close. It's not just affecting certain areas. It seems like it's all over the country right now. So that can have a role, too, if you think of where it used to be where my parents and my generation even growing up, doesn't make sense to rent a house. You should buy, and that way 30 years down the road, you have equity in it, and la, ya, ya, ya. Well, right now, you can kind of see where if I'm a young college kid, I'm already graduating, I have this debt, do I really want to lock down and have a 30- or 40-year mortgage, whatever it may be, and have to pay that much every single month? What if I want to move in another year or two years? So I, I think a change in that, too, is because of circumstances. People, I think, want to have that freedom and flexibility, younger people, I mean, if they want to move to L.A. or if they want to move to you know, New York or Miami or what have you, they want to have that flexibility to do so. And I think that's why you're seeing so many more young people renting, whereas our parents' generation, they would buy a house and pay it off and probably be in that same house 30, 40, 50, 60 years later. So. Sure. And I think some of the millennials, they went through that housing crisis in 07, 08, 09, where they were of age, where they're like, wait a second. Mom and dad are really struggling now. They're underwater on their mortgage. Why am I going to sign up to do the same thing? I think that's a great point. And that would be, I mean, that was traumatic for a lot of people, for a lot of young families. There's a certain percentage of the population, especially the young population, who just says, hey, I don't want to tie myself into that. I don't want to have an obligation uh, when I'm not really in control of the market of what the value of that asset may be or, or may not be. So I think that's a good point, too. Just one more note on the cost of housing. I know for me a few years ago, I bought a fixer-upper, which, by the way, I will never do again. But my parents going You wouldn't. I mean, I've seen the conference table <laughs> that you have built here at Mentoro headquarters, and it is the best one in the Southeast. Yeah. I mean, just imagine what my house is like, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So, you know, I'm, I'm telling my mom this, you know, I bought this fixer upper and I'm channeling my inner Joanna Gaines and I'm going to make this work and then I'm going to get the heck out of there in a couple years. And she just doesn't understand. She's like, but this house is great. You look so happy here. This is amazing. Why would you leave? See, you could do this. And she's brainstorming of all the things I can do at this one house. And I'm like, mom, why would I try to force the future life I want to have into my current life right now. But I think that perfectly explains what we're talking about here. It's just different mindsets. And you're exactly right. She lived in the same house from when I was born until they officially downsized. So interesting. Well, kudos to you for taking on the uh, project to renovate a house. I uh, watched the show Money. Was it uh, what was this, the name of that Tom Hanks movie, Money Pit? Money yeah. Pit. When that's, I was like 10 or 11 years life. old. And it yeah. sticks with me to this day. Like I'm never going to do that ever. <laughs> It just looks miserable. So kudos to you. (laughs) So fair. Yes. Another area where I think there's a big difference is healthcare. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. What have you seen from that, both as parents and then with your parents? It's it's interesting. I think in my case, my parents are in their mid-70s. And with folks living longer and longer these days, the life expectancy is now uh, well above what it was even just 10 years ago or 15 years ago. You're starting to to see folks, uh, mainly the boomers, worry more about having enough money to last through what may be an extended retirement. And then you talk about the healthcare part of that. Long-term care is expensive. These assisted living facilities are very expensive. And so that adds a whole new dynamic to the whole retirement debate or issue. And and I'm seeing that specifically. You know, my parents have, uh, and they'll get a kick out of it if they're listening here, but they said, you know, when, when it's time, we just want you to put us out the pasture and build a fence around us and leave <laughs> us alone. Uh, and they don't want to burn us with, you know, and they're, they're joking, of course, but they know that the cost of all of those things. And so they're saving with that in mind and they're very cognizant of it. So it's just one example, but it's definitely something that's a topic in my life. Sure. And I think partially a downfall of society. I think a lot of us are always trying to achieve more and more. So you just mentioned the cost of long-term care. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, that really wasn't a thing. And it's great that we're trying to achieve more, but I think it used to be where families took care of each other a little bit more. And now it's just like, we're trying to achieve what? Success in whatever our mind is. But I do think about, and I've shared my story in some of the presentations I've done, but my dad did have a stroke at 60 and my mom couldn't take care of him. He went basically from being like you and I to wheelchair bound and all sorts of medical needs. And even though they worked both of them, middle-class jobs, had money and savings, when we looked into the insurance, my mom, when he came home from rehab, if she wanted to keep him in rehab after that 60-day period, she would have had to pay $700 a day until her savings got below $2,000. That's why I think the pressure I feel is now, okay, eventually I'm going to have to get long-term because I don't want to be a burden to Ava and Ellen and have them take care of me. So it's just, I think Mm -hmm. the the cost of healthcare has definitely led to different types of thinking, not even, you know, in my generation, younger and older, I think that's a huge, huge issue. It's interesting. I mean, you pointed it out. We're in a time where healthcare has never been better, uh, but it's also never been more expensive. And if you're not properly positioned or prepared for that, then you you could have a problem. Mm -hmm. That's such interesting perspective to hear with you guys both being in that sandwich generation. Taking it back to the Mentoro side of things for a minute with our participants, I'm sure you see it every day, Danny, where people are different in terms of their personal situations. And so when they're looking at their different health insurance options, a lot of them have no idea what they're looking at or 
which ones apply to them. And, and there may be some instances where, you know, a high deductible plan makes total sense for one person. But if you have a family with more kids or theoretically more doctor's visits or what have you, it may not be the right solution. Everyone's situation is different. And we've seen it through generations. Okay, do you think differently because of certain circumstances? But I think we have to keep that in mind. Because of different experiences, they're going to look at things differently than we do. And it's not necessarily right or wrong. It's just based on their personal perspective. Mm -hmm. I think you hit a key there with perspective. When it comes to looking at finances, you can never have enough perspective as you're channeling what it is that you'd like to do. So we've been talking about how the world of finance changed over time. But not everything changes, right? Some things stay the same. Up next, we'll talk about some money lessons that have stood the test of time, no matter what generation you belong to. From the greatest generation and the Great Depression to Gen Z and Bitcoin, we've seen some big changes. Do any financial lessons stand the test of time? I point out a study done by the Brookings Institute. This study found three simple rules to avoid poverty that worked for at least 90% of people who followed them. These three rules are finish high school, get a full-time job, wait until age 21 to get married and have children. And the research shows that those who follow those three simple rules, only about 2% are in poverty. Nearly 75% join the middle class, which is earning around $55,000 a year or more, which is pretty impressive. And, you know, there are always going to be outliers who break these and still have success. And from a personal perspective, my mom and dad had me. My mom was 17 and my dad was 19. So they didn't follow these and ultimately achieve success. But I think the 70s, it may have been a little bit easier to do so than now. So they seem so simple. But when you think about it, it really does make sense that these are pretty much three basic rules. And if you do them, odds are you're going to be okay. So in terms of looking at a career and being able to increase your income over time, at least you're starting out with a solid foundation of having a high school diploma. And from there, I think getting a job and maintaining that job and working hard, and this would be a lesson that my stepfather, to bring him back in the loop, would tell me is stay loyal to that. If you work really hard, you can grow with that company. But I also think bringing in a little bit of the younger generation and marrying the two, it's being loyal, but also keeping yourself in mind and what your future looks like so that you know how to increase your income in the right way. And in addition to that, find other ways to generate income. There's a lot of different things you can do without needing a ton of money to get started with it. Pick up a side hustle that you can do on nights and weekends or what have you, but other ways to increase income obviously doesn't hurt. It's funny that you say that. So I was just talking to my friend yesterday and he was at a party the night before talking to a guy he went to high school with that had a job making six figures and then it was too much. So he scaled down has a job that he's home a little bit more, but he took like a 40% pay cut. So he said, I'm going to have to find a way to, to supplement my income a little bit. So he drives around the garage sales, finds different items, a lot of it's clothing and he knows, okay, I can go home and put this on eBay and make money. And he said last month alone, he made like $3,000 net profit. Now, a lot of work though with him, you know, you go find a shirt at a garage sale for 10 bucks and then you sell it for 15, you're only making five bucks. But I guess if you have the time and you do that, 
You can. So I, I do think going back to your point, I mean, that may be an extreme example, but I do think coming on the heels of COVID, we live in a gig economy now. There are plenty of things that we can do to increase our income. Right. That's so impressive to me. I'm kind of like dumbfounded that someone could do that. I think another point would be once you're getting this money, being able to save it so that you can prepare. So for example, with your friend, being able to make such a lifestyle change, we all go through that during periods of time. Maybe it's a new mom wants to stay home for a couple years with her child, or maybe you just go through different things in life that you never really know what's coming next. So being able to save more gives you not only that flexibility, but helps to prepare you for the future as well. Liquidity is important. Cash is king, as the old saying goes. And and while money is not everything, having flexibility and having a savings account gives you a lot of options in in life and, and can solve a lot of problems, quite frankly, if things pop up. If you don't have enough saved, then you can make any problems exponentially worse that may arise. So, you know, the interesting thing is with my son, who's 17, he's a saver. And I don't know if he's just an old soul, or I don't know if that's indicative of, you know, some sort of a change in the younger generation that they've kind of gone back to that. But he doesn't like to spend money. He understands almost sort of innately the the value of saving money. And so anyway, it's critically important. And just, I think we've experienced that for a lot of us just recently in 2020 with people losing jobs and, and getting cut and furloughed. But, you know, for me, I, I think maybe in a way I'm, I am older, but I think I'm somewhat part of the millennials in the way I think of the job where we talked earlier in this episode about just having that one job for 40 years. Well, I was one that I feel like for me, the reason to save money is to have options. And I've been in jobs that I absolutely hated and I took pay cuts. I took 40% pay cut like my friend's friend at one point because the job I was driving to, I hated it. But because I had savings, I was able to say, you know what, I wanna do something that gives me more fulfillment in life. So definitely, I think that not only following those three rules, but you know, increasing your income saving. And then probably the final one I think that can help you and it's so basic, but don't spend more than you earn. It's such a no-brainer and an interesting story. My mom was actually talking with my niece. She's gotten her first bank account, so she's learning how to keep up with that. And in her mind, she's like, what wallet am I going to put all this in so I look cute? And my mom's like, well, you have to do a little bit more than that, right? You have to balance your checkbook. And she looked at my mom like my mom had three heads, like what in the world is balancing a checkbook? And my mom was just beside herself. She was like, how does she not know what a checkbook is? You know, something just so interesting. So I still obviously balance my checkbook. You can't even buy a checkbook register at Walmart anymore. I went there the other day because I couldn't, I'm out of registers. They don't even have it at Walmart. So I guess I got to <laughs> order them on Amazon. But that just kind of shows, I think, the generation we're in now of like, yeah. They don't. Yeah. <laughs> Some of those really positive habits that maybe the older generation put in place by balancing a checkbook or making sure that they kept up with their receipts. Nowadays, everything's so automated. On the one hand, it's really nice not to have to manually sit down and do that. But because you don't have that reminder, it's a little bit easier to get in the habit of spending more than you make or living outside your means because you don't have that reminder. If you factor in the credit card in that equation as well, it just makes it that much more difficult because you don't technically have the availability on your credit card is that's not your money. It's the, uh, it's the credit card company's money that you're borrowing. So that's one way to look at it. And something else to keep in mind with all these lessons is it's not one size fits all. Everybody's different. Uh, maybe one person is different from another because uh, he's a millennial. Maybe you have a baby boomer, but even not every millennial is the same or every boomer is the same. So just 
different personality types, you know, may transcend generations. I totally agree. These tips tend to work for most, but we need to understand people where they are as an individual. Great idea. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Casey and Whitney, thank you so much for chatting. And thank you for listening. Catch us next time as we run with the bulls. Run with the bulls is sponsored by Mentoro and hosted by Danny Kofke and Whitney Queen. Learn more by visiting mentorogroup.com.